0: Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast, I'm your host, Sean Johnson. The common wisdom around creating a marketplace business is to start with the supply. The, The logic is that without the supply side, you're not going to be able to grow the demand side of the business, and that's usually the side that ends up getting monetized. My guest today is Jessica Messenger, who's currently the head of growth at Cameo. Prior to Cameo, she was involved in the growth teams at both Twitch and Uber, and Jessica's focus has been consistently on organizing teams to grow the supply side of the business. Uh, Jessica was actually a guest in my digital marketing class at Kellogg, and I thought the content uh, was so interesting that it'd be a fantastic fit for the podcast. The audio gets a little bit spotty when students uh, are asking questions, uh, since they're not close to the microphone, but I think that uh, Jessica's insights more than make up for it. So, if you've ever thought about building a marketplace business, or you've just been curious how it works, I think you'll get a lot of value out of the episode. And with that, let's go to Jessica. I know before you got into the startup world, you, um, like many people here, you actually were in consulting. Um, so maybe talk about first about what what prompted the decision to kind of uh, leave consulting world and jump to startups, and then how did you how did you land that first gig?
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I started my career in consulting. I was actually at PwC in like their diamond acquisition group um, doing customer strategy over there. And as I'm sure some of you know who are in consulting, you start with a massive start class, right? And you are one of maybe a hundred people in your area who do the same thing. Um, But it's a really great way to get trained, to learn a lot about business, to touch a diverse set of clients um, and really get an understanding of what you like and what you don't like. What I sort of quickly learned was I loved the strategy piece, but I hated not being able to see what happened after I left. Um, I was I just like wanted more ownership, and so it was sometime around the holidays. Um, I was had some time between projects, and I was looking around for companies in Chicago. And somebody from Uber messaged me. And at that time, it was like back when you tell somebody about Uber and they're like, no way would anybody get in a stranger's car. And I'm like, you're probably right like this. I don't know. Um, but what really appealed to me was getting, finding a way to start to differentiate myself and really dive into more of the operational side and see things through from strategy all the way through to execution. And I felt comfortable leaving consulting because I knew it would always be there. Like even when I left, My manager at the time sat me down and was like, "Look, like if in six months you don't like it, like come back and you will be no, you will be no farther behind." Um, And so that was really reassuring when I left. But it was really Uber was starting out, and they were exclusively hiring people from consulting and investment banking only. Um, So why
0: was that? Do Do you know what was that?
1: Yeah, the mindset was really just like. Hire smart people. Hire people who have attacked problems from different angles across a diverse set of areas, and they'll be able to come into Uber, look at data, evaluate the situation, and figure out what to do. Um, So it was really unique. But everybody who started from that like 2012 to early 2014 time frame was hired out of consulting or investment banking and sort of morphed into startup employees.
0: And so you started in operations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then slowly kind of, you did a couple of things and you slowly kind of migrated over to you know, where you ended up on the marketing side. We'll walk, walk through that journey a little bit.
1: Yeah. So <clears throat> Uber at the time had two roles they had marketing and operations. Um, and when I dug into that during the interview process, mm-hmm. what I found was operations meant you think about drivers, and marketing meant you think about riders. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, the rider side was a lot of handing out promo codes on the streets, going to different local festivals, and getting people to know about Uber. Um, and the driver side was a lot of most of the investment banking type people, really deep in the numbers. And what was interesting to me is my background was more on the marketing side. I studied marketing school, I was doing customer strategy and segmentation and consulting. And I thought there was like this real gap where I could come in and sh- sort of show them that, like, hey, there's marketing on the driver's side too. Um, and so that's sort of exactly what I did. I went in on the driver's side at Uber as an operations person, but right away owned all of their email channel for their drivers um, and figured out like how do we optimize our email channel, how do we scale that across more than one city, um, and then what are other marketing-type touch points that are really important to us. Uh, we had never considered... like customer sentiment with our drivers or NPS and Lyft popped up around that time as well. And so it became more important that we were making our drivers happy and helping them choose us. So it was things that may not be super scalable, but were really effective in the beginning that I got to sort of lean into like driver appreciation events, like rent out a soccer stadium and let them play intramural soccer against each other. Things that seem super unscalable, but really made a huge impact in the beginning. So Migrated over towards this driver marketing side before it was really a thing, Um, and about a year later we sort of formalized it um, as driver growth, and was really well positioned at that point to then take over what was called the central U.S. and Canada. So we had 86 cities um, and really built up that driver growth team.
0: When you say uh, you transitioned from uh, marketing to kind of formalized growth, how would you? What was the? How would you define the difference in terms of? I know growth. uh, Uber has a very um, well-known reputation, at least on the on the user acquisition side for growth. But what did that look like on the driver side?
1: Yeah, on the driver <laughs> side, it was surprisingly less about acquisition and more about activation. So, on the driver side, we had a lot of people who signed up to drive because it was super easy. We made it really simple. Um, they would even go so far as to like upload their driver's license, upload their insurance card, go through a whole background check. And then we just had a huge pool of people sitting in this place where they never took a first trip. And so, my job in the beginning was one, really looking, the first thing you do at any company is look at the whole funnel, whether you're looking at customers, whether you're looking at drivers, whether you're looking at Twitch streamers Mm -hmm. or Cameo Talent today, look at that funnel and find out like what is our problem or what is the biggest opportunity area? Do we need to get more people in top of the funnel or are people stuck somewhere here? And that's it's much easier to get people moving in the funnel than it is to get new people in if they're just going to get stuck. Um, So, at Uber, it was more about, we have this pool of people who could take a first trip, and they're not. Why aren't they? Yeah. Um, so from there, digging into motivations as to why they weren't, and then experimenting as rapidly as we could with things that weren't scalable to figure out what we could do, and then figure out how we scale that when we find what works.
0: What are some examples of some of the maybe the techniques or strategies that you use, you know, to kind of get to um, the psychology or motivation or like the mental barriers that are preventing them? And then secondly. Um, can you, just because everybody loves examples, can you think of any examples of some of those, those um, types sort of iterations that you did? To-
1: yeah, I think <clears throat> one, we did a lot of phone calls in the beginning, so user research is super interesting and always very helpful, <laughs> but attitudes very rarely reflect behaviors. So you can do all these calls and you should to try to learn what people are thinking. Um, but what they say isn't always what they do. So they may say, "I'm not taking a first trip because I'm too busy," but they're not really too busy. There's really some other underlying cause, and good user researchers can get there, um, but it's very, very difficult to do. But one thing that came out of that was um, people were like just anxious about that first trip experience, right? Like. You never walk through it in the app. You don't know what it looks like. Will the rider actually get in your car? Uber was still like a pretty new concept at that time. And so that anxiety, um, an example of like something we did to try to squash that. And this is super early, so very not scalable, but like actually one night we're like, let's just see if this thing works and we sent an email to all of our drivers in the Chicago area and we're like, "Hey, we set up your account so tonight if you get if you turn on your app and you say that you're ready to take requests, you will only get requests from Uber employees who will answer your questions." There were like 10 of us at the time. And we just got in cars of first-time drivers and literally like talk through their questions, talk through their concerns, help them be more comfortable, and then tracked that cohort, it was super small sample size, right? But you track that cohort as they go on to see like, did they actually retain, did they stay engaged? Um, did they drive again and did that help? Things like that did help. And so then you sort of think through, okay, like how can I scale this? Because we can't get in every driver's car. Um, And that's sort of when my career started to transition to more of the product side because you start to think, oh, the way to scale this is to like build something that's in the app that helps them get their questions answered or helps them experience a first trip. And so. That's sort of when mm-hmm. I migrated on that side and we started to figure out like, can we build like a mock first trip? Like, is there a state in your app where you can go on a fake first trip without us actually needing to be there? Mm-hmm. How do we set up a call center where we can call all we actually did like build a call center where if you're stuck from when you upload your license to not wanting to take your first trip for X amount of days? Um, We actually give you a phone call and you have like a real person you can talk to about the experience and get questions answered. So it was really like trying those things at a very basic scrappy level and just getting them done and then once they work and you know that they work invest more time and resources to make them scalable.
0: So it sounds like it was a fairly um, similar similar process to how growth teams kind of typically operate. Are there there any um, nuances or discrepancies or differences that you can think of in terms of either process or in terms of um, the kinds of things that you measure or the way that you measure or the tools that you use to measure kind of on the supply side versus on The demand side or is it pretty much? Pretty much the
1: it's actually fairly fairly similar um, and I've only mm-hmm. only ever done consumer side So I can't speak to like SaaS B2B type. Yeah, but a customer is a customer mm-hmm. There are like extreme nuances between both sides of the marketplaces and they all have very unique motivations, behaviors, different interesting data you can look at and you have to have a different tone and voice with them. Um, But the problems tend to be very similar and then you actually tend to see more differences like company to company rather than by sides of the marketplace. I think um, you asked me a little bit about this question. I think something that's interesting is like, I've never on the supply side had a top of funnel acquisition problem. Mm. So compared to a lot of like growth, people out there. A lot of them are, um, more harping on the top of the funnel just by the states of the businesses I've worked in. We've had these pools of people just like stuck. And I'm like, if I can just move you and keep you engaged, then we're good. Um, and so that's been where most of my focus has been. And on now I'm covering both sides of the marketplace, both customer, and then our talent who cameo is personalized shout out. So if you want to have your favorite real housewife wish your best friend a happy birthday. You can do that on our site. Um, so we call the real housewife people the talent and then the customers are the people who purchase. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm covering customer side as well. And it's just more so you want supply side tends to come first, right? It's yeah. like you have to build the supply and then the demand will come. Yeah. And it was the same at Twitch, it was the same at Uber. Yeah. But once there, once those wheels are turning, segmentation's the same behavior. You just have to find out what those are, but yeah. the approach doesn't differ. Got it.
0: Um, what about differences between when it sounded like when you got there, it was still kind of an emerging um, business, and then at some point Lyft kind of got involved. Um, Talk about the difference between, if there is any, between when you're trying to market the idea of ride sharing versus uh, marketing the idea of why us. Like what what changed there, if anything?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> so it's it was always why us, but our demographic changed a lot. So in the mm-hmm. beginning, the we thought we could only convert taxi drivers. So the why us was why should you drive why should you drive for Uber instead of driving taxi? right? So we would go to taxi lots and we would talk to drivers. We would go to like there are popular restaurants that taxi drivers go to. We would go sit at those restaurants and talk to them and try to sell them on like why Uber? Um, Because they were the ones who were familiar with the concept of a stranger getting in your car. And so that was the why us was why us over taxis. Over time, as Lyft emerged, we had to really make the sell of to people who weren't already driving, and that was really the big fundamental shift: was why would my dad, who's retired, get in his car and take a few trips a day um, over sitting on the couch at home, right? Like, why us? And we never really pitted it; it was never a Lyft versus Uber when talking to the drivers, and in the early phases. There wasn't really enough demand that you were busy all the time. So our big play was get both apps. If you want to drive awesome, we will make Uber the better place to drive because you will be busier. You will make more money, but keep both apps open and see what happens. Um, But really it was the shift in the demographic Mm -hmm. that was more noticeable because in the beginning we thought we could never get somebody who didn't already drive Random people around the city to drive random people around the city, um, and pretty quickly we realized that there was this huge market that anybody could be a driver.
0: Just a personal question for my benefit: I had um, a conversation at dinner last weekend, and um, someone had mentioned to me that they they ride in the passenger seat, and I, it was really surprising to me. And we ended up having like a twenty minute debate about that I was the crazy one getting in the back, like they're. <laughs> my chauffeur and that that was really offensive versus which one what am I supposed to do?
1: So actually this is like lift in the beginning played this big angle of like they are your buddy like okay. early lift was like you sit in the Front front seat. I don't know if anybody here ever took a lift super early But it was like you sit in the front seat They fist pump you as soon as you get in and that was like their standard <laughs> thing mm-hmm. Uber was never like that because we we went more for the taxi drivers yeah, in the yeah. beginning. So people got in the back seat. Okay. Um I think it's a personal decision. Yeah. Um but I've heard it's more common on Lyft to sit in the front seat. Interesting. And but now with Uber pools and Lyft lines, you're just sitting wherever there's sitting an open lunch, seat. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I just wanna put my headphones in. And that's like, the This is my like ten minutes of reprieve.
1: We thought a lot about um, <laughs> yeah. like preferences. Like as a rider, could you be like, I literally don't want to talk to you today, sure. and designate that yeah. to your
2: driver?
0: Um, cool. Okay, so um, <clears throat> so then you jump over to Twitch, and first of all, um, what is Twitch? Yeah, and and then um, why is Twitch?
1: Yeah. So um, I looked around at Uber one day and so at this point I I started my Uber career in Chicago. We started to build out product side at Uber and again I I told you the way that we scaled a lot was Mm -hmm. actually building a driver app and building a lot of these features in that app itself. Um, So I moved out to San Francisco to do that and I looked around one day and we were like a 15,000 person company and we were a machine and I'm like I wanted to work at a startup. Um, So I made the decision to leave Uber and started to look around the Bay Area and a friend who was at Amazon mentioned that Amazon recently acquired some company in SF that people thought was fun. And so I got talking to this company and they told me that you watch people play video games. So Twitch is a video game live streaming platform. So if you go to Twitch, you will see that you literally are watching somebody play a video game, and then there's like a chat scrolling on the side. Um, it's very, very interesting. Um, I had never, I mean, I played like Mario Kart in when I was growing up, right? That was probably the last time I played a video game. And I found out video games are like hugely competitive now. There's like new games every month. There's this guy named Ninja with blue hair who people love. Like all of these things that I, it was like a whole world I never heard of. Um, and the first thing I do is like, especially in San Francisco, everyone's like super in touch with tech stuff. So you start like asking around, and as soon as I would talk to like somebody who knew about Twitch, their love for it just like poured out. Like they're like, I watch that like forty hours a week. I'm like, When do you have forty hours a week? Like you have a job. Um, and so seeing the like love that consumers had for it was insane. So I decided to learn more about it and. That another was really like revolutionizing like the entertainment experience. So today you may watch *Bachelorette* at home and <laughs> sit with a group of friends and comment about it because it's way more fun yeah. to watch together or if you're watching it alone you may have twitter open like laughing at some of the things that are going on and twitch really brings that experience together so you're watching something happening whether it's an anime series marathon that they're running or somebody playing a video game and then there's a chat going along the side and you can vote and your votes actually impact what happens on the screen and it's this like crazy experience that once you get into it it's like really really engaging and so I got super bought into like the future of entertainment, um, and they were owned by Amazon at that time. And for my personal learning, I was so curious to know how like the machine that is Amazon worked, yeah. while still getting that startup vibe. So, I jumped over to Twitch, found out that it is like the people who watch Twitch like absolutely love Twitch, and that demographic is like just continuing to grow every single day. But the other interesting thing is the willingness to spend is extremely high. Um, so the amount of money that's flowing through this free, free service, you can watch, you can chat, you can do whatever you want for free. People are still choosing to pay because they feel just from your life, like you probably pay for your cable, you pay for Netflix and you feel like if you're watching something for X hours in a week, you should pay or you should give back or you should support this person who's trying to like live out their dream. And so. It's a very, very interesting business um, and it's pretty like brand brand awareness is high within the gaming segment of like hardcore gamers in the U.S. is what we call them, um, but general awareness is very low. So
0: Yeah. Um, and again, you were on the supply side, right? You were working with creators primarily?
1: Yeah. So when I came in to Twitch, they were like 400 people. They were recently acquired by Amazon. And they had a marketing department that was creative, like they had the designers who were designing things and making t-shirts and that kind of stuff. And then they had a product side, which was engineers and product managers who were building the website. Um, And so I came in as what we called like creator growth manager. And my job was to figure out like, how do we grow the creators or people who stream on our site? And I sat between marketing and product at the time and had to figure out like where do we even start and I was pretty naive and I thought I would come in and flip and like oh you don't even send a welcome email when you're when like somebody streams for the first time like we should like welcome them to twitch and like explain like this is awesome and like here are the levels that we have and all these things. And so I figured I could get that done. I'm like one of my interview. I remember distinctly being like, in my first week, like there will be a welcome email going out to like every creator who tries to stream. And I get there and I realize like they didn't even have an email tool. And so you know your job then becomes like spinning up that email tool for three months and making sure that the data is flowing correctly and making sure that we can track all the things that we're doing then you can start to flip on a bunch of those campaigns. Um, So while I was there, we built up both the marketing side and the tech side of growth. Um, Yeah, primarily focused on the creator side. And
0: were you primarily trying to convince, um, you know, like uh, I know, you you know, Unisquare Ventures, they talk a lot, user and content sites and social sites, they talk a lot about like this 90, 10 ratio. Um, Were you, were you primarily... Yeah, 90% of people that join any sort of social site or whatever it is are lurkers. Basically, they never create content. Only 10% actually create content. And then like 1% of the 10% create the overwhelming amount of that content. Um, Were you primarily trying to turn viewers into creators or were you trying to bring in um, people who were not currently... Does that make any sense? Yeah. Are they the same people?
1: So I'll first answer the 90/10 piece sure, yeah. of it. Okay. 90/10 was super prevalent on the viewer side. So we mm. saw 90% of our viewers literally lurked. They would mm. just sit there and watch. And we thought like the magic of Twitch is this: you're engaging, this you're, yeah. right? Like you're part of this community, you're impacting what happens on the mm. screen. But then we find out most of our viewers just sit there and watch, which is super interesting. Um, so to sort of get them engaged we had to think through ways that we could involve them without making making that barrier to get involved much lower so rather than having you type and do an intro and like try to dive into this chat you may vaguely know what's going on like how do we have a one click button where you can like react to something that happens or how can you one click vote on what you want somebody to play next and try to get those engagement numbers up so we can show that we can convert Inactive viewers or lurkers to active viewers and engagers. Were you the
0: first ones that did that pattern? Because I know you see it now with like a lot of the live, like Facebook, like Facebook Live or Instagram. Were you guys the first ones to do the?
1: I think actually, like one of the first I remember is like honestly Facebook doing like a like thumbs up thumbs yeah, down yeah, yeah. thing very yeah. early on, and that's sort of the concept that's like trickled yeah. across all of these. So we definitely weren't the first, but Twitch is one of the most innovative, especially when it comes to making tipping engaging. Um, that's one that's pretty interesting. Mm. Um, on the streamer side, so that was my task, right? Come in and like, we mm. really didn't want like subpar streamers. Streaming is really really difficult. It's difficult because you either have to be amazing at gaming, like yeah. esports, right? Like you are the top 1% in the world and people watch you because you were just amazing at what you do. Yeah. Such a small part of Twitch. Most of it is people who are more like um, TV personalities, people who used to do stand up comedy, who now mm-hmm. stream and they're like entertainers. And they like, so it's called variety streaming. You like literally play a new video game every day and you're usually really bad at it but it's really funny. And like people like to watch you and you have a good personality. Um, but we don't have streaming software. So if you want to stream on Twitch, you have to figure out how are you going to do that? You have to download there's OBS, XSplit, there's a bunch of them. You have to download streaming software. You have to figure out how to set it up. Um, you have to have a camera and lighting. You have to have a microphone. Um, all of these things that are like pretty daunting. So at Twitch, the problem on the supply side was, People were starting to stream and they would do it once. You could do it one click. If you have like a PlayStation, um, you can literally say, I want to stream on Twitch and it'll just show your screen. But there won't be a picture of you. There won't be a microphone. It's really boring to watch. Tons of people do that and show some intent. Tons of people sometimes even do it two times and show some intent, but then they fall off because they aren't really sure what to do. They may not have the right software. They don't know basic best practices. So. Again, I was less focused on top of the funnel and I viewers, it's like we got to convert most of them to even start to talk, let alone convince them to stream and we really didn't need more streamers. We needed more streamers to get from this like low level to sort of the higher caliber where you can manage an audience of like a thousand plus people Um, and the behaviors are super different. If you have three viewers the way that you run your stream, the way that you interact with your audience is significantly different than if you have 500, <coughs> significantly different than if you have 50,000. How so? It's really like one to one, right? If you yeah. have 3 people in your 3 people who watch your stream, you probably know their usernames, mm-hmm. you're able to respond to every single thing that they say in the chat and you almost form like a friendship. Like people always say streamers always say that they remember like the first person who followed them the first person who subscribed to their channel be, and they do meetups like I, this was also crazy to me that like these people you've only interacted with will like fly to a city just to like meet you and have dinner yeah. with you and I'm like are you worried and they're like no um, yeah. yeah but that happens a lot and so in the beginning it's like that right yeah. then you get to somebody who's a few hundred and the people in your chat start to have relationships with each other. And you can't keep up. You're also (laughs) playing your game. You're also doing this. How do you foster those conversations and get people to engage with each other? And then you get to like a ninja level and like, one, people are paying just to be able to type in your chat at that level, two, like you're, um, like you. Cannot keep up with the conversations. If you ever watch and you can pull up the stream of like somebody like a ninja, he his chat scrolls. So I'm like, I don't know how anybody keeps up with it. And so it's more about just being that entertainer and like public figure. Interesting.
0: But a guy I met yesterday at at this uh, at this event um, brought his son, and his son was going to meet his girlfriend for the first time. I was like, What do you mean meet his girlfriend for and They met on Twitch.
1: Did they? Yeah. It happens a lot. Yeah.
0: And so they would go. I think they would go and they would chat with like some, watching someone else play. And that's how they sort of got started. It's
1: really, really, really (coughs) interesting. It's interesting. Yeah. We we have TwitchCon every year and I was like, who would pay me to come to TwitchCon? Like a lot of people pay me to come to (laughs) TwitchCon and they're decked out. Like people make their own, like I, somebody was in like a full Twitch suit. It was like just Twitch logos. like full suit. And I was like, do we sell that? And I was yeah. like, no, he made that. I'm like, oh. yeah. like the love that they have with this brand is incredible. And really my job coming in at that stage was how do I not tarnish this brand? Right? Like it's all built on community when we're trying to grow these streamers. I don't want to come in as like Twitch the third party and say like, here's how to grow your channel. And so a lot of the tactics that we took were more around, okay, I want to get this streamer who has really like grown up on the platform to communicate to other streamers about mm-hmm. best practices, about tips, and how do we facilitate those conversations and mentorship um, in a way that also serves Twitch?
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, I, I would imagine that you would you think uh, there's a there's a common sort of like startup um, trope that uh, in order for you to <laughs> to sort of be successful or to maximize your likelihood of being successful, you should you should um, you should build something that you would use personally. Right. Um, I would imagine you don't, I mean, and and you weren't, you didn't start it, but I mean to market it effectively, I would imagine a lot of people would kind of argue the same thing. I'm guessing you would not necessarily agree with that. Um, how, how do you think about that and how did you go about putting yourself in the mindset of these people?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely Um, true. I think I've had like a pretty unique case where I've for dri- I hate driving a car. I literally am the worst driver in the whole world. I should never drive on uber ever because I should barely drive myself to work every day. Um, but and so at twitch same thing right like I didn't really I didn't play video games. Um, I definitely didn't know what twitch was before I started interviewing there. Um, and so it's really important for me to understand the mindset of the people who do love twitch right. And so my first week I actually went And saw streamers full days from like when they wake up in the morning to when they go to bed at night. And I was like really, really surprised because even if I'm not gonna do it myself, which you should, if you if you could, if you can, don't force yourself to like something. We had a good mix, right? Like within my team, I had people who were avid gamers, avid Twitch viewers, and would like give me a reality check when I needed it. But we also had experts in their area who were just had to work a little bit harder to understand that consumer. And so I went and there's this one guy, his name is Grenader Jake, um, if anybody watches Twitch, and Grenader Jake is based out of, he moved, but he was, um, based out of a little outside of San Francisco in Sausalito, and I, so they're like, yeah, just go to Jake's house. So I text Jake and I'm like, hey, I'm going to come over and like watch you stream for a day. He's like, awesome. I'm like, what time do you wake up? And he's like 5 a.m. I'm like, okay. So 5 a.m. I like go to Sausalito and he's young. He's 21 years old at the time and has this like massive two bedroom apartment with like full views of the ocean. I'm like, do you know what you're doing? Um, so I go to his house at like 5 a.m. He's like in the shower or something, but I really wanted to see like his full day. And he comes out, he's like, has to t- press all of these buttons to set this thing up that like starts a countdown for his stream. He has a stay-at-home fiance at the time whose sole job was just to like help him get through the day. And so she would he would like turn on then he would sit down and turn on the stream and he had like three monitors. He had like one big one in front of him, that's where he played the game. He had like one on this side which was his chat and then he had one on this side which was like special effects and all of like the add-ons. And then he had like his mic on and his headset, um, and it was like so much work. I was so surprised how he was. And he's a good player at the game that he plays. He was like doing well in the game, and then he was responding to chat, and then he was like making cool effects happen when cool things happen in the chat or in the <coughs> game. Um, and it was really eye opening. Like he streamed from like around six a.m. that day until like five p.m. that day and I was like falling asleep in the room because I was so tired like and I wasn't even streaming or talking but trying to keep up with him was so difficult and but I learned a lot about twitch too like at the time you could only run a commercial for two minutes and so he would run commercials and in that time he would do five push-ups. go to the bathroom. His fiance would bring him a sandwich and he would like shove down as much wow. of it as he could. And then he would be back on and live because he was streaming for 13 hours. And that was the only time they could make money, right? It's not like YouTube where you record a video and then it works for you. Twitch is all live. So seeing those things really helped me feel a lot of like empathy for the streamers, even though yeah. I was never, and I did try to, I streamed, I did an IRL, we call it in real life. Where you like basically like video blog. I video blogged an intramural kickball game one night to like my mom as a viewer. <laughs> um, Did you get any tips? Yeah, no tips. No tips. No, no tips,
0: unfortunately. Well, that was, I mean, we talked last week about how many of these kind of companies have pivoted. That uh, Twitch was, was started as Justin TV, mm-hmm. which was basically this dude uh, doing a reality show of his life. And just he had a camera like following him around all day. Yeah. That's my understanding, right? Yep. That's how we started.
1: Yeah, and we have there's so many categories. So video gaming quickly became like the biggest (laughs) one, but IRL or in I believe it's South Korea, it's called social eating, and it's basically like you're eating to uh, you're eating to uh, people are like nodding their head like they know what this is, but you like eat and then you like chat with people, and it's like you're having dinner with a group of people, (laughs) but you're on the stream. So we did that last night too.
2: Did
0: you? No. (laughs) Okay. Uh, yeah. very Interesting. Yeah. Um, I think I had seen, was there a question? Yeah.
2: yeah. I do have a question. So not necessarily so much in your role of cameo, but Uber and Twitch, can you talk at all about like the concept of a growth strategy where the demand actually becomes the supply? So, you know, as Uber's progressed, a lot of the people that were once just in the back seat are actually now starting to go into the front seat in that big economy because they can't even if they have a full-time job. And I imagine at Twitch that might be an aspirational thing, but how do you think through that with the strategy of growth, or is it even a factor that you guys think through?
1: Yeah, I think once you start to think about top of the funnel, the easiest people to convert are people who are already familiar with your product. And so then the next step is really to look at that data about the people, so your active viewers or riders, and are there any um, distinguishing qualities or things in the data that you see that help us identify who might be a good driver, who might be a good streamer, and then how do we start to like lightly target them? So through like
0: psychograph, like that enrichment and psychographic type of stuff?
1: uh, (laughs) Mostly it's behavioral, honestly, right? And so it's like, are people who ride in an Uber? I don't know, like if you ride in an Uber, this is just an example that's not, this isn't actually something we looked at, but you could look at like people who ride in an Uber, you know, every morning around 7am and every evening around 5pm probably have a full-time job, can afford to take a real Uber twice a day. Probably. Less likely to convert than somebody we see taking an Uber, you know, haphazardly but regular. Like you know, we see them sometimes it's at one o'clock, sometimes it's at three o'clock, sometimes it's at five o'clock. So are there trends like that that you can pick up in the data to try to figure out who you might want to try to convert? Yeah. And then finding ways that you can like lightly sort of nudge those people and see once you find somebody who takes off or a group that takes off, then double down. But um, for us, it was things like with Uber, like putting, um, encouraging drivers to talk to riders about driving with Uber and giving drivers incentives because they get a feel, right, about who's in their car and they have sometimes very intimate conversations or people say that they're looking for work or whatever it might be. How do we give them, like, hey, you can make $100 if one of your riders becomes a driver? Like, that's huge yeah. and it's a lower acquisition cost than a lot of the other channels yeah. that we have. Um, or in the Rider app now, for example, you can like scroll through and see some offers. Like there might be one about driving on Uber, right? You do click that and then we simultaneously serve paid ads to those people or whatever it might be. Um, but we started by looking like, at, the, at the data to try to figure out who we want to nudge and you're absolutely right. Like when you're trying to drive top of funnel, it's much easier to convert people to supply side if they're familiar with the demand side.
2: So then follow up to that, is there typically, in your experience at least with the startup, that there's a tipping point once you hit a certain amount of demand or a certain amount of, in a timeline that that starts to become part of your growth strategy?
1: I think it's on like a case-by-case basis because businesses are so different. Like I sort of mentioned, we've never really been like top of the funnel constrained pretty much anywhere I've been. Um, and you always do some top of the funnel efforts because you want to make sure that there's that constant yeah. flow. Yeah. But most of our work has been like these people are right in front of us. How do we get them to engage? How do we get them to engage more? Is it easier to get somebody who drives or streams twice a week to get them to do that five times a week? Like absolutely, that's that's something we can do. And <clears throat> how do we how do we prompt them to do these things more often and longer in healthy way? Yeah. Cool. We talked a bit last week about North Star metrics, I'm just curious about North Star metrics, maybe you can
2: speak a little bit about Uber and, uh, and uh, Twitch and then if that's, if it changed at all, while you there, um, the evolution of those?
1: Yeah, um, I can speak to Uber, I think probably easiest. In the beginning um, at Uber, our North Star was literally just, we called it butts and seats. You wanted to get butts in seats. We didn't care if it was an UberX. We didn't care if it was an Uber Black, an Uber Taxi, whatever it was. We wanted more people to get familiar with the product to get their butt in a seat. We didn't care if it cost us more than it made us. We wanted you to experience that product. And it also had a lot to do with the business, right? If you have riders, then the drivers are busy and they'll keep driving. And you know you're going to lose money in the beginning because you just want people to get familiar with their product, sort of on the bet that in the long term their LTV is going to go up. Um, And so that was sort of our north star mission. I think the thing that it sort of migrated to was we went on this like blitz of Expansion in the beginning we were launching a city I don't know every two weeks something like that and every time we launched a city We would hire a new team and they would operate as a small startup So there was no sharing of best practices across cities unless you like called somebody in Austin, Texas And you're like, what'd you do when you had this problem? Um, but That works when you're launching a city a week and you can actually hire those people, get them up and they can run. Um, We went on this blitz where it was really like launching sometimes like 10 cities in a day. And so when you start to do that, you realize that you can't grow in the same way. And Butts and seats was still important, but our North Star then was like a ride for everyone. And so whether you're in like Peoria, Illinois or downtown Chicago, like you should be able to get a ride. Um, and so that's sort of like what our North Star pivoted to. And it's only slightly different, um, but that was the big shift. Um, and I think the reason you shift is different, right? Internal and external factors. Um, and I don't know. I don't know that I'm completely bought into a North Star metric. I think I'm, I'm very supportive of North Star sure. metrics. I think you need that to like inspire people, but I think it's like a standalone thing. They're more inspirational than like day to day operational, right? And so I think where companies make mistakes is they only have a North Star metric and everyone thinks they're driving towards that, but they're all doing very different things. And so, you know, you can have a conversation with somebody, this happens a lot. You have a conversation, you're like, we aren't definitely on the same page. They come back the next week to show you, and you're like, you did something totally different, um, and I think with North Stars, if you don't start to operationalize those and get okay, but under that, like what ladders up? At Amazon, we call them like input output metrics, right? Um, output is like your top North Star, input are all the things that ladder up to it, and making sure that you pair the two and you're adjusting those based on like internal of like what's happening at your company. North Star changes a lot less, but the other things change a lot more.
0: Let's um, let's jump to Cameo. Um... You you joined a smaller. If I understand it correctly, I mean you jumped. You're now earlier than you were at the previous two. Exactly. Um, Still a marketplace. Yes. Right. Although you're, you're. Sounds like you're responsible for both sides. Um, And then I think it would be just really interesting for everybody around, um, around the talent side because of the nature of who the talent are. Um, How do you go about? Like, why are they doing this Um, from their perspective? and uh, how do you go about kind of acquiring these people? And, 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 and I just think it's, it's fascinating to me, so just.
1: It's a very interesting, very interesting business. Um, it's one of those things you hear and you're like, that's dumb. And then you go on the website, and you're like, wow, I just spent three hours on this website, and I want to buy a cameo for everyone I know. Yeah. Um, and so it's that was really interesting to me. I kind of like, mm-hmm. I choose companies I work for when I see something it like makes me really happy. I'm like, oh, like this makes me so. At Uber, it was I could get in a, I could. Request it was Uber Taxi at the time, but I could request an Uber Taxi and I could see where it was. And as a consultant who has to catch like a six a.m. flight every Monday morning, it was like game changing and made me so happy. At Twitch, like I never completely got it in the beginning, but when I talked to people and I saw how happy they were and how much they loved it, I was in. And same thing with Cameo, right? Like. I I bought one for myself actually, and I knew it was coming. I knew who it was coming from, and I knew what it was about. And I was still like almost crying, laughing when I got it, and that's amazing. Um, it it was a gift. Like I got my dad one for his birthday this year, and my dad is somebody who has every like he buys himself anything he wants. He's the most difficult person to buy a gift for. And my mom texted me that my dad was in bed with his headphones plugged into his phone watching the cameo again and again, and again, like he loved it so much. And so, um, they just like make people super happy. And that's sort of what made me join cameo, but it is a really interesting sell. I think what I found at Twitch is one, like customers have a high willingness to pay, to connect to people that they sort of idolize or this like fandom that they create. Um, and then the second piece was that there's this whole category of like influencers and reality stars that are like sparking up and sort of becoming almost as meaningful as like the traditional, like actors and actresses that, you know, have always been there. And what's really interesting about that demographic is if you're trying to get like a famous actor or actress, or even like an NBA player to come on the platform, they're not used to having to manage their like, um, external presence. So they're not, they're not used to like hustling on Instagram to make an extra thousand dollars this month, right? Um, where you go to those influencers who like built their following from the ground up, and they know how hard it is. They know a lot about their audience. They know how to optimize their like content strategies and all of these things. So they're a really fun group to work with because. You can give them like a little piece of advice or a little nudge, and they're gonna do things with that that you would have never even thought of on your own. Um, so I was really excited to work with that space of people again. And I think with Cameo One, it's like the sign up process is insane. I was like, How do you actually get all the talent on the platform? And they're like, Oh, we DM them. I'm like, A DM? And they're like, On Instagram. I'm like, Oh, so I literally, I didn't even know you could like DM people that you weren't even like friends with and stuff, but you can. So we have like a room of people who are more junior from sales type backgrounds that literally send messages to people on Instagram all day and people sign up for cameo and this, this happens. And we do have like, we have traditional outside salespeople who work with big agents and get on like larger stars, but. Most of the talent on the platform is from these people who sit in this room and are DMing like funny things to random people on Instagram. Um, And so that's how people usually hear about it and sign up. And I think the other wheel that we've really just started to sort of turn is referrals, right? So if you're an influencer, if you're a celebrity, if you're an athlete, you have friends who do the same thing as you, right? And so how do we help you help? use them to spread the word. Um, so to date we've given them an incentive to bring people on and we're going to continue to like iterate on that path because that's definitely the path of least resistance to bring people on.
0: Yeah. Any nuances around, um, now you're, I mean, if I understand it correctly, you're the you're responsible for standing up this growth team from scratch um, versus uh, it sounds like you were coming into something that was already kind of moving to some degree. Um, how did you? What did you do? And 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 what did you take from what you learned in the previous uh, roles in terms of how did that inform your process of standing this up?
1: Yeah, <clears throat> um, growth is a really really interesting area because it's different at every single company. And even if you if you talk to like five people whose title is growth manager, they have five different jobs. <laughs> yeah. um, it's really really interesting. Um, so. From Uber, I sort of saw saw more of like growth operations moving over to like growth product. And we very quickly divided between rider growth and driver growth. And within those, built out growth within the tech org. And so there were engineers that you had available to actually build the things that you wanted to test and try. You had data analysts on your team, all of those pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, At Twitch, I came in and we didn't have growth, we didn't really have marketing. And so we first spun up growth product, um, which was really the team that was like building the tools that growth needed to get experiments running and try different tactics. But then we moved growth over to marketing and, um, that was the first time growth for me didn't sit with. The engineers directly, and there were some challenges there, but also some advantages because you can move a lot quicker. You can get a little bit more aggressive with some of your messaging because you have, you know, CMO buy in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at Cameo, stepping into a blank slate when I joined, we were a 30 person company. About 15 of those were salespeople, um, the ones who are DMing the celebrities, and then a very small tech work. We had one PM, a CTO, um, a PM product manager, um, a CTO. VP of engineering and like two engineers and so I came in and spent my first month really figuring out like what's going on today right like what do we have what do we not have um it's interesting because y'all talk they're like we have an email tool and I'm like Great. So if I want to do this, like send an email to people who sign up and create an account, can I do that? And they're like, oh no, like we don't have any connection to our data or we don't have ways to hold control groups. So just really getting a feel for like what exists today was like step one. Um, and I, when I interviewed, um, we talked a lot about does this sit with, does growth sit within marketing or tech at a place like Cameo? And I think it's really important, with, especially with early stage companies that you have engineer support that's directly in your control. And so I report up through our CTO and sit within the tech org so I can have engineers on my team and they can still get the coaching and learning and development, which comes from sitting under that like CTO org. Um, But we will step one for me is breaking it into growth marketing and growth product growth marketing will cover all of our communication channels. So automated email, push SMS. Um, And then eventually, when we start to spend a little bit more like acquisition, paid marketing, and then growth product will be my product managers and the engineers and the data analysts. And those are the people who are doing things like, um, a good example is, how do we make it super easy to share your cameo and how do we make sure we track that? So, like literally using these engineers to make sure that with one click, with single sign-on, you can share this to your Facebook and we can actually track the impressions and reach that that has. Um, Or maybe we want to test a lot of things on talent referral side. How do we actually enable that through technology? How do we surface their offers to them in the app and how do we track and see who they bring on and how those people perform over time? So building out that way, eventually as we mature as a company and as organizations grow, You almost always on a two-sided marketplace see growth break up based on both sides, supply and demand side. Um, So, an Uber rider-driver, a Twitch um, creator and viewer, a cameo talent and customer. We're not there yet. We're still small. I have like I will have a three-person team in the next next week, Um, and so. The reason you break that out between supply and demand is like growth should be really pushing the limits, right? You should be doing things that are aggressive. You should be doing things that are hacky. You should be doing what it takes to solve the biggest needs of the business at that time. And if you're some, if you're keeping it all in one vertical, covering both sides of the marketplace, you may think of something really cool to drive talent science, but then in the back of your head, you're like... But what would this do to customers or would a customer really like that? And so it works much better if you break it out and you have somebody who's like pushing talent forward at all costs and somebody who's pushing forward customer at all costs and they can like check and balance each other and make sure there's nothing like too outrageous happening. Um, But it's much easier to break that out over time and I think we'll eventually get there. But in the beginning, it's really getting people in seat who can do everything and who wanna just be scrappy and figure it out. Yeah. yeah. But I think you'll see growth migrates more towards marketing over time once you have all the tools set up. Yeah. Once you have these like viral loops sort of happening, once you have the product built, then it becomes a lot more about messaging, about targeting, about customer segmentation and motivations. Um, but if you don't have the tools to run any of those tests, then you can't even get to step 1.
2: Mm-hmm. If there's a question of that. So at both Twitch and now at Cameo, you are managing talent when you're on that that product side at Twitch, it was because of those high barrier costs that you were really only getting folks that were serious about streaming. How do you decide now at Cameo who is famous enough to that would bring customers to your site?
1: Yeah, it's that's super interesting because in the beginning, so Cameo's a little over a year old, but like a year and a half. The first like six months were them getting like two or three people on the platform and that was it. So like our growth from last year to this year, you can't even compare. Like it's really, we don't have historical data because it was a totally different subset of talent. Um, but the mindset in the beginning was like anybody who wants to be on Cameo, come on, like we want you on. We're just now getting to a phase where we're trying to figure out who is successful on the platform and how do we get more of them and how do we decrease some of the noise of the people who maybe aren't performing as well as we would have expected um, and why are they performing as well as we would expect. So it's been pretty basic to date like there are follower thresholds based on whatever platform you're on. So YouTube, Instagram, maybe it's like the exceptions are like if you're a famous actor or actress who doesn't have a huge social media presence but you're still very well known then you're in. Um but we're getting much better now. And we have an operations team that just came on that's really focused on refining that threshold and starting to get it by vertical. So maybe it's different for an NBA player than a YouTube star. And how do we start to know that and know who's gonna perform? Because we also need to decrease clutter on the strip on the site. Like search and discovery is a problem that's It was a problem at Twitch, it's a problem at Cameo. There are a lot of people and we want to make sure you can find who you're going to purchase. Same thing with Netflix, right? (laughs) they have so many different things on there and they have so many algorithms that help you find the things, but there's still a lot of clutter. Um, So we want to reduce that clutter without hurting anyone's feelings um, and do that by making the right decisions going forward.
2: Um at a baby shower this year. We had Dorinda. Did you? And say congratulations to the mom to be It was really fun.
1: She's she's really good at them. She's <laughs> she's really funny. There are some people who are Dorinda gets booked a lot. There are some people who are really funny and really good, and some people who are not so good. Um I recently had a candidate we, we sent cameos to like our new hires, and I had a candidate who loved The Bachelor, and so I got her Nick Vial, who's he's in Chicago, and he was a former Bachelor guy, and he is like it was kind of depressing. Like he just he was like, "I hear you're gonna work at cameo," and we're like, "Is that a question?" We told you she was gonna work at cameo, <laughs> um, and so like last minute, we literally called Ben Higgins on the phone. who's another Bachelor. We're like, "Ben, like Nick did not do a good job. Can you please just like record a quick cameo?" And so um, there are people that are good and people who are bad, but yeah.
2: So, you know, most of your experience have been like working with companies to deal with two-sided markets, right? Uh, with Uber and with, uh, with Cameo, like, what do you think about when a competitor comes in, like when Lyft came in, and maybe like Cameo will have like some other competition? How difficult is it to retain, uh, you know, the both user base, and does it become a pricing war then?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, actually, this happened. At- Everywhere I've worked right when you have a good idea like other people are going to replicate you so at twitch um, It was interesting because we had really big competitors come in the people who turned on in that space while I was there was YouTube and Facebook and that's almost like a worst nightmare for a company right because if you think of any of these platforms to have somebody with such immense reach turn on almost like a like a copycat of you is like worst case scenario and so for us, I at that point had this like moment of panic because at Twitch it really was. It, it I mean, at Uber it became very price oriented, especially on the rider side, um, to make sure that people were choosing Uber over Lyft. And it was always like checking numbers city by city and making sure we were doing well or seeing if we had to get more aggressive in cities. And it was. It was hard, and it, it steers you in a direction you may not always want to go because you're like, I really want to work on this thing, but competition is doing this, so we should we should get up to par. Um, at Twitch, we took a very different approach. We said that like we were first to market, and we have really really deep relationships with all of our streamers, and we leaned into this sort of like renegade, like anti the man type angle, and it was funny like our streamers would come to us with crazy offers. Like Facebook would offer them multi-million dollar contracts to stream on Facebook only for X number of days a week for the next year. And they would turn them down. Like they would literally turn them down and say, no, because like my community's on Twitch because Twitch is our home because my Literally because, you know, Adam signed me up for Twitch five years ago and like, I could never do that to Adam and things like that. Just like really investing in your community early on made Twitch like fare very, very well in that situation to the point where Facebook significantly decreased their investment. Um, YouTube gaming like shut down completely and. It was one of those where you wake up one day and you see an article that, you know, they're gonna flip on live streaming for gaming and you think it's like the last day at your job, but your community is so strong and you lean into that. That you can still succeed. And so that's on my mind a cameo, right? Like, what if Instagram turned on cameo tomorrow? I'm
0: I'm building cameo for mediocre (laughs) school professors. Oh. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I'm worried about that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so you could, I mean, I'm hoping like people today, if you talk to our talent, talent NPS is really high. They know the person who signed them up, they know their name. We try to, and every time we change something about the product, how do I over communicate that to our talent? make them feel like they're heard, make them feel like they're a part of their process. We don't want to burn them in any way because there will be competitors that pop up and we want to make sure that they still choose <clears throat> us without—and it, it's actually less of a price battle with um, this influencer category because— People are actually equally as motivated by this like, community and being respected and not wanting to like burn their audience that they sometimes feel bad taking money. And so I don't think we'll get as price sensitive, but really leaning into like who we are um, as a company and identifying that brand voice early on.
2: Um, so I was just curious with um, the positions that you've talked about today. So at Twitch, at Uber, there were a lot of opportunities, obviously, to reach your audience um, digitally. But what kind of non-digital marketing are you doing, at least for Cameo? Because like you talk about like TwitchCon, you talk about people actually handing out flyers. So what non-digital levers are you pulling?
1: Yeah, so right now at Cameo, we've been lighter on the non-digital only for the reason that we sort of have this like robust machine that's not digital with our talent acquisition team. So they're already humans who are like DMing celebrities. They're going to Lollapalooza or going to Coachella and signing up talent there um, one-on-one. And so that machine was sort of already built and I haven't touched it too much. Mm-hmm when i think about what the future looks like for cameo it's it's more on that community building so at some point i will have a community manager whose job will be to like how do we foster that community and it's not a cameo con but it is like hey, is there like a dinner we host at Super Bowl? Is it like encouraging a meetup in Chicago for all bloggers? Um, how do we lean into those things and really drive that community aspect? And that is sort of my next step, but we're not quite there.
2: adoption on the product side, do you have a process of looking at like when you should add features when you should remove, or when you need to like, simplify something?
1: Yeah. Um, product road mapping is very, very interesting because... One, everybody has so many opinions, right? Like we could all visit the same website and each of us would have a different top five things we want added or changed or removed. Um, and so for that, it's really aligning on like what are our goals at the highest level, right? So we talked about that like North Star a little bit, but like what what is it that we care about, right? Because we don't want to run after every like bright shiny object we see or else you'll get this like Frankenstein's product. And so really aligning on like the thing that we want to do really well, and then trickling that down into every work stream. From there, it's really like higher from, my, from where I sit, like hiring really, really good product managers who know how to do just that um, through a combination of like looking at data, Through customer research. So, like the qualitative side, like literally phone calls with customers or watching customers go. There's tons of good tools where you can watch, you know, have 60 customers go through your flow that you're building for onboarding, for example, and see where they're clicking in the wrong places or where they fall off because they're confused and trying to optimize those. Um, And then also getting the input from everybody around them at the company, outside of the company. Taking all those things together and then building out a roadmap, there will always be more things to do than you can physically do. Um, And so typically you're prioritizing by like size of prize. And so whatever metric you're trying to move, where do you think the biggest opportunity is and trying to get my mindset and this is different. um, People call it like most lovable product or minimum viable product, MLP, MVP. how do you get something out there quickly that gives you a read? If you should spend, you know, a quarter diving fully deep into that, um, or is that enough? And so we work really hard when we think of ideas or product changes we want to make. Like, what is the minimum lovable product or minimum viable product that we can get out there to get a read and solve this problem? But there's no, there's no like right answer, and it being a product manager is a very difficult job for that reason but it's a
0: fun job. My guest today was Jessica Messenger of Cameo. For more information on how to disrupt your own organization, visit us at www.digintent.com. And if you liked the episode, we'd love a review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever uh, podcast platform you enjoy the most. That's it for this episode of The Disruptors. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.